in professing our common faith through the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So there are many things that Christians disagree about, but the truths contained in the Apostles' Creed have united Jesus' followers across cultures and across time for 2,000 years. We are in the middle of exploring what the Creed has to say about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's being and the radiance of God's glory, only we get to see him up close. And because Jesus is fully God and fully human, he is the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between. This morning, we're going to zoom in on the part of the creed that says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Early on in his gospel, Luke writes that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. There may be no Christian doctrine that arouses as much skepticism and mockery as this one. And there are objections that we can't just brush off. For instance, Matthew and Luke mention the virgin birth, but Mark and John and Paul do not. Why? Some argue that the story of Jesus' birth is a is just a Christian parody of other myths from late antiquity in which the gods gave birth to gods. Others argue that this has to be the stuff of legends. It's, a, it's an origin story concocted after the fact to, to elevate Jesus' status. Are these legit concerns? 
I don't think that we should be troubled by the fact that Mark, John, and Paul make no mention of the virgin birth. Uh, Mark makes no mention of Jesus' childhood at all. John tells an even more elevated origin story, claiming that Jesus is the eternal word of God that created and upholds the entire universe. And Paul's writings are occasioned pastoral letters. They were not intended to be accounts of Jesus' life. But what about these other myths that predate the Gospels? Well, the accounts in both Matthew and Luke sound absolutely nothing like Zoroastrian or Greek myths. They do, however, have all the hallmarks of authentic Palestinian literature. More importantly... They maintain that Mary's miraculous pregnancy was foretold by their own prophets. So there was no need to import anything from a different tradition. Many have argued quite persuasively, I think, that the Gospels were written far too early to be legends. At a time when Jesus' contemporaries were still alive. And could speak up and discredit anything in them that was false. Not only that, but their content was far too counterproductive to be legends. In a legend, the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad. But in the Gospels, the apostles are portrayed as clueless, bumbling, impulsive, self-serving, and cowardly. Why would they be portrayed that way unless it was true? Perhaps most convincingly, those who testified as eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were often persecuted and martyred. So ask yourself, why would someone make something up and then die for defending what they knew to be a lie? Does that make any sense at all? As Blaise Pascal says, I believe witnesses who have their throats cut. Well, so what? If Jesus was really conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, why does it matter? What difference does it make? Well, the virgin birth means that Jesus was not contingent upon Joseph for his existence. And therefore, Jesus could have existed before he was conceived. The virgin birth means Jesus experienced full humanity. God shrunk himself down to embryo size and swam in amniotic fluid for nine months just like you and I did. He truly emptied himself of any and all divine privilege and advantage and experienced life on the same terms you and I do. He took no shortcuts. Other than Jesus, only two people are named in the entire uh, creed, and that's Mary and Pontius Pilate. Anybody have those two in their office pool? <laughs> Bueller? Um, of all the people in the Bible, why are Mary and Pontius Pilate the only one mentioned? It's, it's such a strange combination. About a thousand years into church history, legends began to grow up around Mary, that she was conceived without sin, that she remained sinless throughout her life, that she was a lifelong virgin. And these legends elevated Mary in the Christian imagination. Since the Reformation, many Protestants seeking to, to distance themselves from these legends have gone too far and neglected Mary. And we really shouldn't. After all, Mary was the first person to say yes to Jesus. 
She was the first person to receive him. The first person to truly understand the magnitude of what God was doing through him. Mary composed the first Christian hymn. She was an incredible model of humility and courage and faith and servanthood. And we would do well to sit at her feet and to imitate her example. And then there's Pontius Pilate. How on earth did he make the cut? (laughs) Pilate's name anchors Jesus' story to the world's story. It's like saying I was born the day after Ronald Reagan's inauguration, which is true. It reminds us that Jesus entered Israel's story while it was suffering under foreign occupation. God's people were being oppressed, and Jesus became one of the oppressed. Pilate sentenced Jesus to death without cause. Jesus was a victim of injustice. Not only did his own receive him not, not only was he rejected by his leaders, denied and betrayed by his friends, he was pushed through a a sequence of illegal trials, which were predicated on trumped-up charges, and he was condemned to die, even though Pilate knew he was innocent. If you have suffered injustice... If you have suffered abuse, how comforting it is to know that Jesus knows what that's like. There's a whole lot of evil in the world, and God does not exempt himself from it. As Dorothy Sayers says, he takes his own medicine. John Stott said, I don't think I could worship a God who didn't suffer. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who's immune to it? Jesus was crucified, he died, and was buried. That might be the only line in the creed that an atheist can recite in good conscience. It is an uncontested historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans and died. Jesus did not appear to die. He did not fake his own death. His heart stopped beating, and he stopped breathing. Hours later, when the soldiers put a knife in his side, blood and water flowed, signifying that his red blood cells and his plasma were starting to separate, something that only happens after you die. Two days later, women went to Jesus' tomb carrying spices to embalm a corpse. Jesus died by crucifixion. For the Romans, crucifixion meant public humiliation. You were hung up, naked, In public, with the charges against you scrawled out over your head, crowds of people would gather to mock you and jeer you. Some would spit on you. Soldiers cast lots for your possessions while you were still alive. In most cases, bodies were left on crosses to rot or to be pecked at by birds. Crucifixion was meant to be a deterrent. Rome's way of saying, look, if you mess with us, there is no limit to the violence and cruelty we will inflict upon you. Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and terrifying penalty of all. In the Jewish imagination, crucifixion meant that you were rejected by God. Cursed is anyone who dies upon a tree. After Jesus died, some of his disciples were walking away from Jerusalem. They were dejected. 
We had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but then he was crucified. The implication being no one who dies like that could possibly be God's anointed. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, bandits, and enemies of the state. A crucified Messiah meant a crucified Israel. A crucified Messiah meant that all hope was gone. One of the most important questions we could ask is, why did Jesus have to die? What does his death mean? The first Christians very quickly recognized that the cross was the fulfillment of Israel's story and the climax of history. How do they reach that conclusion so quickly and so unanimously? To answer that, we need to take a step back. Before Jesus arrives on the scene, Israel is living in darkness. And by that I mean for hundreds of years, no prophet had spoken, and Israel had been living under foreign occupation. Israel's story had stalled. There were so many promises unfulfilled, so many questions still hanging in the air. One particular conundrum had to do with the presence of evil in the world, especially with God's people being oppressed. And God's not doing anything about it. Let's pan the camera all the way back. When God created the world, he created it good. He called it good. Human beings lived in perfect harmony with God, with creation, with each other. There was a profound oneness. All the pieces fit together. Until human beings rejected God's leadership so that we could become our own God and decide for ourselves what's best. And when that happened, that perfect world that God created began to break. And all of our relationships with it. This intrusion of evil led to an unraveling. We became alienated from God, from ourselves, and from one another. That's what evil does. It breaks relationships. For instance, when a person steals from another person, the victim is violated there's a loss of harmony and peace between them. And there's a debt between them that fractures the relationship. But that's not all. Evil also pollutes the environment in which we live. So if I hear about a neighbor stealing from another neighbor, that shatters my trust. That shatters my peace. All of a sudden, I have to think about, well, how am I going to secure myself against those who might seek to steal from me? So evil breaks relationships and it pollutes the environment. We feel this, don't we? We feel this every day. And something deep inside of us says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And God should really do something about this. God should bring justice upon evil. He should destroy it. But there's a problem. See, evil isn't just out there. Evil's in here. My own heart is infected by it. Evil is, is why we're tempted to, to look down on and, and avoid and neglect and use people. It's why we're tempted to disadvantage others in order to advantage ourselves. So there's a conundrum. We want justice. We want God to rid the world of evil, to restore peace and harmony. 
but we need mercy. See? We need God to spare us. Even though, if we're honest, we are guilty of contributing to the brokenness and the vandalism that we see all around us. So we want justice in the world, but we need mercy for ourselves. How can we possibly have both? If God is merciful and he forgives us, there goes justice. And if God executes perfect justice, we're toast. How can God possibly destroy evil without destroying us? And the first answer to this conundrum was animal sacrifice. Now, I know this seems really, really weird to us. But back then, animal sacrifice was a powerful symbol of God's grace. A pure, spotless animal dies in my place. Its blood covers my sins. God provides a way through a costly sacrifice to make us right with him so that we can be one again. But not only does the sacrifice cover my sin, it it cleanses the community. When an animal was sacrificed, the priest would sprinkle the blood all over the temple. I know that sounds gross. But remember, the temple was meant to be a microcosm of the universe. And an animal's blood represents its life, its life force. Sprinkling the blood was meant to symbolize God purifying and cleansing the environment which had been polluted and vandalized by sin. For ancient Israel, sacrificing an animal was a powerful experience of God's grace. An animal dies in your place, and as a result, your relationship with God is restored. The sacrificial system was God's way of judging evil without destroying his people. Doing justice upon sin while at the same time showing mercy to sinners. And cleansing the environment so that the community could live in harmony and peace. The idea was, okay, now that God has forgiven you, you should forgive one another. Since God has shown you mercy, you should be merciful to one another. Since God is just, you should do justice by giving people what they deserve whether that's punishment or protection or care. But of course, this didn't always happen. Isaiah, for instance, begins his prophecy by saying to Israel, you know what? Your sacrifices are meaningless. They really are. You're not showing one another the love and the grace that God is showing you. You're mistreating the poor. You're taking advantage of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. In other words... You're going through the motions of animal sacrifice, but you're not allowing God's grace to transform you. Later on, Isaiah says that one day God will send a new king who will deal with evil and injustice in a surprising way. The king will actually be a servant. And he will suffer and he will die on your behalf as the ultimate sacrifice. And his blood will bring the ultimate purification and cleansing. So when Jesus shows up and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He's saying, I'm the king that Isaiah promised. I'm the king who rules by serving and suffering and laying down my life for others. By the way, what's a ransom? 
It's a payment that sets another person free. Jesus says, I will pay your debt and I will set you free. I will die in your place. On the cross, I will experience God's justice so that you can experience God's mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. Why did Jesus have to die? What did his death on the cross accomplish? 1 Peter 3.18 Jesus suffered because of other sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us to God. That's it. Jesus died to bring us to God, to make us one with him, to heal the relationship, to destroy evil without destroying us. The word for this is atonement, which you can read as at-one-ment. Jesus' death pays our debt and brings us to God so that we can be one with him again. Now, there's another question. How did Jesus' death accomplish this? And to that question, there's no consensus. Sorry. What did Jesus' death accomplish? Forgiveness and reconciliation, peace with God. Blue check mark, slam dunk, it's unanimous. How did Jesus' death accomplish this? Eh. There are lots of theories. What theologians call atonement theories, for instance, the recapitulation theory. God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden except that one. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. If you do, you'll die. It was a test. God says to Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. And he failed the test. Toward the end of his life, Jesus was in a garden and faced a test, a much tougher test. And God said, obey me about the tree and you will die. And this time it was a cross. And Jesus did. So Jesus is the true and better Adam who passes the test and whose obedience is credited to us. That's the recapitulation theory. Then there's the ransom theory. Jesus paid the price to release us from Satan's grip. The victory theory. Jesus' death disarmed the powers of sin and death and the devil. The substitution theory. Jesus died as our, repu- uh, as our representative and substitute and takes away our penalty and our debt. There's the satisfaction theory. Jesus' death satisfies the debt of God's honor that our sins affronted. There's the moral influence theory. Jesus' death changes our affections and empowers us to love others like he loves us. I mean, there's six theories right there. Which one is it? It's all of them and more. One author writes, there is a kaleidoscope of atonement images in Scripture, and it would be foolish to choose one and neglect the others. Scott McKnight compares the various theories to strings on a violin. When all the strings get played together, they create a harmonious composition that puts our hearts at rest. What Jesus does on the cross is unexpected, it's beautiful, it's multifaceted, it's mysterious. How will God do justice upon evil while showing mercy to his children? 
through the cross. How will God defeat the powers and the principalities of darkness through the cross? How will God transform our hearts and make us part of his new creation through the cross? How will God liberate us from our slavery to sin through the cross? How will God destroy the power of death through the cross? How will God usher in the new covenant through the cross? You can say this refrain with me. How will God deal with our enmity and hostilities and heal our relationships through the cross? How will God forgive us without turning a blind eye to our sin through the cross? How will God heal our wounds and cleanse our impurities through the cross? How will God show us the full extent of his love through the cross? How will God reconcile us to himself through the cross? Don't you see every loose end gets tied up? Every conundrum is resolved. Every promise is fulfilled through the cross. But here's the kicker. The cross not only defines Jesus' life and mission, it defines our lives and our mission. Because Jesus says, follow me. And then he went to the cross. The Christian life is a cruciform life. A life that is shaped by and defined by and patterned after and powered by the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see, you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a radical statement. Paul is saying, the crucified Messiah is my identity. The me who used to be so self-assured so confident in my own righteousness that I felt justified in looking down on and excluding and harming others. That me no longer exists. The only me that's left is the me who draws life and breath and strength and wisdom and purpose from Jesus. That's what, that's what he's saying. This is, by the way, what we celebrate at our baptism. Our old self is drowned and our new self emerges. We're constantly being defined by our peers, by our appearance, by our trauma. People try to define us by our, our education, our jobs, our gender, our race, our nationality, our politics, our relationship status, our sexuality. And these things matter. They're, they're part of who we are. They're, they're part of our story, but none of them are ultimate. None of them are primary. None of these things ultimately define us. If you are a Christian, then your ultimate identity is that you are in Christ. This is why Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. When you are united with Christ, then nothing about you elevates you over others. 
and nothing about you belittles you beneath others. If the cross counts, then labels don't matter. What matters is that because of the cross, you are a beloved child of God. The cross is not only our identity, it's also a pattern. It's a way of life. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. In other words, you must renounce yourself, die to your ego, and embrace the way of sacrifice. What does this look like? It means that we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It means that we adopt the posture of a, of a learner and we cultivate curiosity. It means that we forgive others just as God has forgiven us. It means that we were blessed in order to be a blessing. We don't dare short-circuit God's generosity. We serve others and we meet their needs even when it's costly and inconvenient for us. A cruciform life means that I take the time to see the world through my neighbor's eyes and to hear my neighbor's story and to care about those who struggle and suffer even if it never affects me personally. Let me say that again. A cruciform life means that I, I take the time to see the world through my neighbor's eyes and to hear my neighbor's story and to care about those who struggle and suffer, even if it never affects me personally. A cruciform life means I care about refugees, even if I never leave my home country. It means I listen to the experiences of people of color, even if I'm in the majority. It means I extend myself on behalf of the poor, especially if I'm well healed. It means I get close to the mistreated and the marginalized, close enough to feel their pain, even if I myself am buffered from those experiences. It means I welcome LGBT people into my life and protect them against victimization and exclusion, even if I'm cis and straight. What might it look like for you to live a cruciform life this week? What might it look like for us as a community to grow in cruciformity? Jesus is not a legend. He is the word of God made flesh. God shrunk himself down to embryo size and moved into the neighborhood through the womb of a virgin from the sticks. He experienced everything we experience, including rejection, suffering, and death. And his death is the linchpin of history. For it brings victory, forgiveness, reconciliation and peace to a fractured and weary world. When Jesus' sacrifice becomes real to you, it will transform your attitudes, your priorities, your relationships. It will get you out of yourself so that, like Jesus, you can lay down your life for others. The story of Jesus is the very best story I know. And best of all, it's true. And even if you can't believe it today, you should want it to be true. There is no greater love. There is no greater hope. He is the beauty that saves the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, captivate our hearts. Enthrall us 
with the beauty of Jesus' self-giving love. May it be our joy, our identity, and our way of life. For your glory and for our neighbor's good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.